Hi folks, welcome to Fig Tree Ministries. Today's lesson was recorded on September 21st, 2021, and this is the first lesson in our weekly Bible study on the book of Matthew. Today's topic is the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, which is how Matthew expresses the kingdom of God. Today, we explore how that phrase was interpreted in first century Israel and the implications for us and how we live out our lives within the kingdom of God. Now, this Bible study is presented live each week. If you're interested in joining our study, it's every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Pacific. You can head to our website, figtreeteaching.com. Across the banner at the top, you'll see a link, Join Our Bible Study. You can click there to sign up at no cost, although it'll look like you're purchasing something. In reality, you're not. It's just the method we use to bring people into the study. And you're welcome to join at any time. Also, you can find at our website a handout for today's lesson, as well as a reading plan for the entire 10-week study. We hope that this Bible study through the book of Matthew blesses you and helps you to see just how deep Scripture is. So as we look through the cultural lens of first century Judaism, we always see things that we've never noticed before or we wouldn't know are there because they're cultural. And when we do see those things, generally, they're very powerful in solidifying the foundations of our faith. So we hope you can join us for the live study. If you can't join us live, well, enjoy today's lesson here on video on the kingdom of heaven. So as we're all aware, we're going to be starting a study. It's a Bible study using the book of Matthew. That's how we're going to put it. I want you to read the book of Matthew, because anytime you can read the Bible with more intentionality, not just read it quickly, but read it when you're really thinking about what it's saying, you're always going to learn something new. So we, that's part of the goal. Part of the goal is simply to read. And then every week I'll pull something out and we'll talk about it to try to help broaden our understanding of the entire Bible. So today it's going to be the kingdom of heaven, which is immediately... I'm wading into some kind of minefield because this is a difficult topic that has been interpreted many different ways throughout this, the centuries. Everybody here on this call has a certain conception about the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to talk through, and then I'm going to try to give you one model to think about, have you think about it, because I think it fits the way that Matthew, uh, the way it's written in Matthew, the way Jesus uses it. So, okay, study on Matthew. This is week one of ten. Now, I always try to choose a picture that helps us understand something about the lesson. So, this is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The Temple Mount is the large enclosure, the base that you see, the big square base. Right here in the middle, let me find my clicker. Oh, there we are. Right here in the middle sits today a mosque. When Jesus was alive, that was the Temple Mount. Or, I'm sorry, not the Temple Mount. That was the Temple. So God's temple sat right where that mosque is today. And conceptually, to the Jewish mind in the first century, that temple represented the location where heaven meets earth and God's presence is found. If we think conceptually, like how do we envision this idea of God's cosmos? And they said, look, there's earth, this realm that we call earth we live on, and then there's a place called heaven, and that's what God is 
that's his locale. And even though I, I know it's not totally correct, but it's just their idea of what, the way they think about it. And heaven and earth cross right where that temple is, so that the presence of God is fully manifested on earth in that temple. Now, this is going to feed into the way we think about So, of course, God is up. God is always up. If you say, where's God? Everyone points up. Earth is down below, is the lower one. To the first century mind, this is the location where heaven and earth meet. And it's a little bit like at the top of your handout, I put a quote from what we're going to read in Matthew. It's the Lord's Prayer. You all know this by heart. Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And then, which direction? On earth, right? So, it's your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, we sometimes think we want to get somewhere over there, outside of this earth place. But Jesus says, no, 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 the prayer is to bring the rule, the reign of God to earth, to intersect to have heaven and earth intersected right here today. Your kingdom come as we live in the present. Right now, have it be manifested on earth. So your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. That's what we want. We want the reign of God to spread out here on earth while we're here. And God, of course, wants you to be an instrument in doing that. And that's why we're going to talk about the kingdom of God today. So that little phrase on earth as it is in heaven, will be part of our model as heaven and earth come together in some, well, mysterious way. That's the kingdom of heaven. Okay. All right, the study. This is just a quick review. I'm going to ask you to read about three chapters a week. The last week, it's four chapters. Nothing overwhelming. Uh, Next week, you'll read Matthew 1 through 3. There is so much information in 1 through 3, there's, it would take us a year to get through it. We're going to talk about one thing. We're going to talk about the genealogy. And God willing, you'll see something entirely new come out of that genealogy that really is quite amazing as they talk about the redemptive history that is going on. And then I'll try to, each week, take a topic from our reading And something that has broad implications for us understanding our entire Bible. Something that gives us a deeper sense of the biblical text. That's my goal, anyways. So, if you look at your handout, each week I'll say read chapters 4 to to 6 or 7 through 9. And then, if there's some added stuff that I want you to pay attention to, I gave you the topic we'll talk about. And then if there's some added stuff I want you to pay attention to, like next week, read Psalm 89, please, because we're going to reflect back on Psalm 89. So you'll see that. And then if you have any questions about the syllabus, again, please let me know. All right. So number two on your handout, the kingdom of heaven. Again, if we were to query everybody on the call and say, give me your definition of the kingdom of heaven, we would probably come up with any number of different things as there are people. Some of them would be very similar, but everybody has a conception of the way we think about what that phrase means, the kingdom of heaven. But what I want to make sure we do is look at the way the idea of the kingdom of heaven is used in Matthew. 
which reflects first century thinking, Jewish thinking, about the kingdom. So, the first thing we have to think about is this phrase, kingdom of heaven. Now, heaven, we often think of the place that we go in the afterlife. Once our life here on earth is done, our soul or spirit, the part of us that lives beyond our body, goes to be in heaven with God. But that's not really what this is saying right here. Kingdom of heaven is the word heaven is used in this case most likely as a circumlocution, which means it's a long way of saying you're using a different word for God. The kingdom of heaven. So, for instance, uh, in Matthew, he uses heaven. In Mark and Luke, they use God, the kingdom of God. So when Matthew says the kingdom of heaven, what he really means is the kingdom of God, but he doesn't say it straightforward. The pious Jews within the first century didn't want to use the name of God. So one time Jesus says, you will see me seated at the right hand of the power. So the power is just another phrase that means God. In the parable of the prodigal son, he says, I have sinned against you, to his, his father, and against heaven. That means I've sinned against God, but he says the words heaven. So anyway, so kingdom of heaven, first thing is the same thing as the kingdom of God. But what does that mean, kingdom of God? So that's what we're going to talk about today. And I'll try to give you a little model to help you conceptualize kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. Okay, so here's the tough part. In the first century, the kingdom of heaven is somewhat of a present reality. Now, in your notes, I put, I put down that Jesus presents the kingdom in Matthew more as a present reality than he does something in the future. So the present reality, how can I be in harmony with God right now? And what I want you to notice is as you read through Matthew, how often the idea of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God shows up and it's only talking about a present reality, not something off in the future. Even the phrase, the kingdom has come near, has come near is the idea of its intimacy. We think of it as, well, it's right around the corner or something like that. No, it has come near. It's near. It's as near as you can get. It's an intimate near. So it's a present reality. I'll show you the author of a book and a commentary in a minute, but he says it's a condition of being. It's a condition that we adopt. It's um, when you say, when you fully, when you accept Jesus as Lord in your life, the kingdom of heaven has arrived. It's a condition in your life when God rules in your life. So in the condition of being, this is from a book and it's a great um, commentary if you're looking for a good commentary to use for the New Testament, that will bring you back to some of the nuances of Jewish thought, first century thought. It's called the Jewish New Testament Commentary by David Stern. Many of you are probably already have this, but it's an excellent uh, resource to go to these little sentences, and he'll often bring, he'll bring out, hey, what did that mean within the first century, rather than what, what developed over time in theological thinking. So good commentary to use. And again, he mentions the kingdom of heaven is a condition. What he also mentions is it's not a time or place. 
So we tend to think, again, I think partly because we think about the afterlife as going to heaven, and the kingdom of heaven has been interpreted that way as the place for the resurrected uh, or the restored creation somewhere off in the future. It's not a time or place. It's uh, more of a present reality for the people that are there. Okay, next on the list, if we want to go deeper into this, we would say, well, it's the acknowledgement of the rule of God. So there's a Bible dictionary called the Anchor Bible Dictionary, and and the entry on kingdom to God, he, the, the author was mentioning, it's probably better understood as the rule of God or the reign of God. So rule of God or reign of God is more active verb than kingdom sounds like a place, a noun, somewhere out there. So it's the acknowledgement of the rule of God. When you acknowledge God is rules in your life, the kingdom has come near. Now, I want to take it one level deeper, though. So people can acknowledge the rule of God, but then we have to, we have to really understand, uh, and, and I intentionally am use, I'm trying to use non- religious language. I want you to think differently as we walk through this, to give yourself a little, think a little bit different about the kingdom of heaven, to see if we can see something you haven't seen before. It's thinking about the reality of God. And what I mean by that is that you can have people that say, well, you sure, I believe in God, but they don't act that way. And then you go, well, if you really knew the reality of the person that, that you're standing before, you would act differently. So, Jesus says one time, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, they won't enter the kingdom. And you go, well, that's a really hard, that's a hard saying, isn't it? That's, that's difficult. And what's he saying? Well, you can say, I believe in God, but not act like it. So think about Paul. The Apostle Paul, when he was Saul, he believed in God. He was a Jewish disciple but he certainly wasn't acting like it. He was persecuting the church. He became violent. So he, he knows about the, the rule of God, but he's not really accepting it at that moment in his life. He's not recognizing the reality of God and the way that, you know, God is. So there's something deeper. It's not just saying, I believe in God. It's, it's actualizing that belief in to doing the will of God, uh, which you'll also see in Matthew. At the same time that it's a present reality, we also know that there is a future component to it. Promises of the future break into the present. They come flooding into the present. So in theological thinking, people will, um, well, I'll show you this book because I put it as a, as a footnote on your handout. This book is called The Presence of the Future. George Ladd was a theologian up at Fuller seminary. He was a Baptist minister who then became a professor. And it's really about how the future of the restoration comes flooding into the present as kind of like the kingdom of heaven is the present reality, but it's also somewhere off in the future. So, okay. So the kingdom of God, it's a present reality, a condition of being when we acknowledge God, when we recognize the reality, and then we adjust our behavior to fit that reality. Say, um, if you have a choice, I can lie or I can tell the truth. Well, the reality of God is, is that God is truth. 
And so if you choose to lie, you're not really recognizing the fact that you will one day regret that you did that, because the reality is truth has a way of finding itself out. So, so that would be one way of thinking about it. You, when you recognize the reality of God, you behave differently in the present, and that then manifests the kingdom of God. Okay, we'll come back to that. Number three on your sheet, we have to do a little bit about just what does it mean that we're human beings in this kingdom called the kingdom of God, right? We have to recognize something about ourselves that helps us recognize God's kingdom, and then how we fit in that. How do we manifest the kingdom? So we have to look at a little bit about an issue of being. What does it mean that we're beings? We exist. And there's a couple things that are going to come together that can make life difficult. They cause all kinds of problems. So the first one, and this is number three, is all of us are bounded by limitations. So that little circle around the, the person there means that you are bounded by limitations. All of us have limitations. That's not a bad thing. It's just a fact. So we're bounded by limitations. What are some of those limitations? Well, there's limitations in knowing, right? Do you know what's going to happen next week, next month, next year? No, none of us do, because we don't have the ability to go out and see the future. So we have limitations in knowing, and that creates problems as we live in, in this world. We have limitations in understanding the fullness of God, right? How many different variations do people have of God? which shows you that they're all based on you know, our limitations rather than the reality of who God is. It's too difficult for a limited being to understand an unlimited God. This is where the, the kingdom of heaven is going to be tough, because we have a, it's often difficult to fully understand God and his kingdom. We can understand it sufficiently, but not fully. We, of course, all have physical limitations. And we experience suffering when our physical limitations bump up against the limitation. And we all experience physical suffering. We all experience loss. So even if it's not our own physical suffering, the loss of a loved one is the experience of suffering. So death for a human being is the ultimate physical limitation, even though we can have sickness and failure of our body and all of that. So we have physical limitations. So we're bounded by limitations. That creates problems because we can't see fully how life is going. Now, if we add to that an, an additional problem that we're going to have is that we exist across time. So we have a past, we have a future, and in moment by moment, we have to live in a way that produces goodness across the future, so that our past doesn't burden us down, and that the future, as, as we go into the future, you can go into the future free, as free as possible. So, and this becomes difficult, because moment by moment, we're, we have limits of knowing. We don't always know what to do. So, for instance, in the past, a past would be... Uh, We'd say we can experience regret, right? Have you, ever, have you ever made a decision and then wished you'd made a different decision? Right? We make a decision based on what we know in the moment, 
And then sometimes, when it doesn't go well, we experience regret. It's a negative emotion that weighs down the spirit of a human being. There's shame, shame that we didn't live up to our, what we thought we should in this world. You can experience guilt. These are all things, negative emotions in the past, because we don't always know everything that we'd like to know in the moment. The future, well, that's uncertain. The future is nothing but uncertainty. And there's all kinds of unknowns in the future. And of course, the future produces tremendous anxiety. So because of our limitations in knowing, we, we have to live in the kingdom of God, but we have to do it. We have to actually exist through wisdom. That's going to be the main point. How do you live across time with all of these limitations? And then produce the most joy you can. Well, it's going to be through walking with wisdom in God's kingdom. Okay, now, it gets worse. It gets worse if it's even possible for us human beings. So we exist across time. We, already, we, did, we did that. We're bounded by all of our limitations. And then something about human beings is we have a tremendous capacity for self-deception and delusion. We can delude ourselves. If you don't believe it, go to the news someday or, or go, on, go on social media. You will see deception, self-deception, and delusion. God doesn't have to give us a commandment that says, you shall rationalize your behavior whenever you do something wrong. God doesn't have to give us that commandment. He wants us to do things that go against our grain. He doesn't have to say, you know, go ahead and just deceive yourself when you think you can get away with something. So we are plagued by self-deception and delusion. And the Bible calls this foolishness. And one of the greatest self-deceptions is that, of course, God doesn't exist, right? I can get away with whatever I want and there will be no ramification. That's a self-deception or a delusion. So on one hand, we have tremendous capacity for self-deception. On the other hand, though, and this is the wonderful part, you have an incredible capacity for regeneration, for renewal, for recognizing the reality of God, for repentance, to add another R word, or reflection. There's another, anything that begins with an R is good. Resurrection, redemption, renewal. It's the D words we don't like. We don't like deception, delusion, despair, depression. It's the, the ability to then see the reality of God and then put that into practice. And the Bible calls that wisdom. And foolishness and wisdom are always set across from each other. Because when we get to the question, how do we live within the kingdom of God? How do we manifest the kingdom of God? It's going to take wisdom. Wisdom is putting, is putting action to our lives. Jesus tells a story. He says, uh, those of you who hear my words and put them into action are like a wise person who builds a house on the rock. The person who hears my words and does not put them into action is like a fool. That'll be in Matthew. So wisdom and foolishness, they're placed across from each other because it's one of them recognizes the reality of God, puts it into practice, the other one doesn't. Okay, to show you two uh, verses that come out of the Bible, these are on the bottom of, your, of page one. The first one is Proverbs 9.10. You all know this one. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So fear of the Lord. 
Now, fear doesn't mean trembling because I'm frightened at the mean father. It's fear. It's the recognition of who it is that I stand before. I recognize who I'm standing before. Therefore, I act with wisdom. Wisdom comes out of that. So wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. You contrast that with something like this, Psalm 14.1. A fool says in his heart, there is no God. Right? So a fool thinks, ah, I can lie or I can create a deception and get away with it. That's foolishness. You're not going to get away with it. You never get away with it. Why? Because the reality of God says God is truth. You're not going to get away with a lie. It will quickly smack back. Watch politics, you know. The politician lies one day and wham, the next day truth is exposed. And they're back now, you know, trying to double down or have their PR firm or whatever. It happens all the time when people are deceptive or try to lie. Reality quickly will slap them back because it's a fool who says there is no God. So we have an issue of being. And and the reason I bring this up is that the kingdom of God is going to require us to walk in wisdom, to manifest the kingdom of heaven right now here on earth is going to take a bit of doing on our part and walking in wisdom. And we compare that with, of course, the foolishness that goes on all around us every day. So there is an issue of being. We bring that up because this kingdom of heaven business is not easy. It's very difficult to pin down exactly how do we conceptualize the kingdom of heaven. All right, so let's go here. If you turn to page two in your handout, I'm going to give you, this is mostly diagrams, and I'm going to give you one way to think about the kingdom of heaven. In no way am I deluded in thinking that I somehow have the perfect right answer, but I want to have you think about What's going on with the kingdom of this, the idea of the kingdom of heaven, and then how we can actualize that in our own lives? So, the top of page two is a full on diagram. It's a progression, and this progression is redemptive history. We'll get into this next week. So, we have to look at a timeline of history in a way, and we'll start down with Abraham, somewhere around 2000 BC. It's the Abraham is the beginning of God's redemptive history. We'll see that next week. That's how Matthew begins the genealogy with Abraham. He's a burst of light into the darkness. That's what we'll do next week. You have uh, another huge piece, the Exodus and Moses. And throughout Matthew, there's a theme going on. Matthew presents Jesus as another type of Moses. He's going to lead you out of something. And so there's all these little references that would cause you to think about Moses in Matthew that you don't find, say, in Luke. So we go Abraham to the Exodus, to the prophets, as we're moving forward in time. And then finally, we'll get to Jesus, because that's, of course, where we're going to kick off in Matthew. This is redemptive history. How is God redeeming the world? Now, what I want to look at is. Between Abraham and Exodus, and actually it's before Abraham as well, but all the way up until Exodus, there's a conception that you find around the world, the way people think. And we find this in our Bible, but this is going to be the thing that God is going to want to break us free of. 
It's a giant cycle, the great cycle of the cosmos. The way people think about the cosmos and the way they thought about time was that everything turned in a constant cycle and everything the cycle repeated itself. So time was just repetition of time again and again and again, and it never technically for them was changing. So we start out Abraham to the Exodus. You have a perception of the way the cosmos works and the way time works. So if we pull this forward to think about this, and I have this diagram in the middle of page two, in this age, when they thought about wisdom, the only reason they wanted wisdom was to gain power. So one of the things that marks this type of um, cycle, the great cycle in the cosmos, is power. People want power. They want power to make their life better. And wisdom wasn't about bringing about some kingdom of heaven. Wisdom was about making your life better. In this, this time, you had violence and chaos and suffering, and the people who lived there didn't feel the moral obligation to make any changes to that. They just thought, well, that's how life goes. So this person dies, oh well, the next year someone else will die. There's no attempt to change anything about, uh, there's no moral or ethical standards to, in, in an attempt to change. So what you get is something about power. And what's interesting, too, about this is the history, when these superpowers, like the, the Hittites or the Egyptians, when they told their history, they only told their history to tell you about the glory of their kings. They didn't tell you their history so they could learn lessons. But when you get to Israel, and as Israel tracks forward, their history becomes all about them taking responsibility for the suffering, the chaos, and saying, look at all the places that we failed. Let's not do it again. Repent. Change. So their history for the, in, the, in, Bi in the Bible is all about us doing a better job in the future. So the epitome of this great cycle in the cosmos that repeats itself over and over and all, is all about power is Egypt. So Egypt is the epitome. So when you see the story of God versus Pharaoh, it's all about power and glory and whose, whose God is more powerful and whose God is more glorious. And so when you see, not only does God pull Abraham out of that mindset and want to set him on a path that's different, God's going to go down to the, to the nation of Israel and pull them out, not just out of slavery in the physical sense, slavery in the mental sense, slavery of the mind that you're stuck in this cycle, that you can't change anything. And God is going to set them on a new path that is, again, it's, this is all redemptive history. How do we redeem the world? How do we bring about the kingdom of heaven right now when we're stuck in this cycle? Well, I got I to gotta rescue you from the cycle. So that's step one in this. By the Exodus, you see God pulling his nation out. Come on, get out of there, people. Let's set up some structure and giving you a different vision of the world. And as time goes forward, and I'm moving about 600 years, to the prophets, you start to see a shift in the way that they view their cosmos. You start to see they have a realm, uh, a basic realm, they call it earth. And then you have an upper realm that's the, the greater reality. We call it heaven, yes? We've heard of this. This is what we know. 
And so if we go look at these heaven and earth, and we say, what are the qualities of these two, these two areas, right? Well, earth, earth is marked by foolishness. It's the self-deception reigns. Jeremiah, uh, you can look this up later, says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. So they know that we're, we're, we're full of self-deception and it reigns. And here on earth, it's all about power and violence and injustice and chaos. But they know the, the reality of God is of right above them in heaven, right? So what's heaven? It's marked by wisdom. It's marked by righteousness and justice and order. And so you see, if you're, if you're reading through your Old Testament, you suddenly get to the prophets, and they're now railing about moral failings and, and ethical issues and how dare you treat people that way. And you're not maintaining your the righteousness that God wants you to. And for Israel, what had been the whole time, Israel was supposed to bridge that gap between heaven and earth. That was the role of Israel. God called them out to, bring, to bridge the gap between heaven and earth. And they were failing, and that's the prophetic voice. It calls you to change your ways, repent, turn and go back, bring heaven and earth together so that it, we can have righteousness, justice, and order here on earth but they were failing to do that. Okay, next, next step. There's one more piece to this that comes up. Instead of time being in a giant cycle like this, that goes away. And they begin to see time in a more linear fashion. So that when, when you have time in more linear fashion, you are moving towards something. It's redemptive history. You're working towards something. When you have time uh, more linear, there's a beginning, there's, a, there's a, a climax, there's a conclusion that we all know we're building towards something, and we know that that something we're building towards is the restoration of all things, but you're part of a story now, and that, that's a radical shift. It's a radical shift in the way people think, and it's ultimately changed the world. So having that story gives you a part to play in the story. You're part of the story. You're no longer fated to the same old behavior year after year after year. You can change. You can reflect back on the past. You can make the future different by what you do today. Now, I'll do this real quick. There's, I want to just get this for the, for the video, and this is on your handout, but a great book. This is, just, this is like the classic book. It was written in 1954 originally. Merchia Eliad, he was a professor at uh, University of Chicago. And this has just been, this book is fundamentally talks about this whole idea of this big cycle that was broken by the, the, by the Bible, the, by, by God. I mean, well, he doesn't give God the credit. He's not writing as a Christian, but ultimately says, no, the, the Bible's correct. The Bible moves you out of that great cycle and onto a path that you, where you go into the future. It's a great book if you're interested in learning about this whole history as it goes through. One example of this from the biblical text, this really helped me understand. You have a book like the book of Judges. The book of Judges is like other, it's like a, from another world. It seems like, where, why did this book end up in our Bible? Well, the book of Judges is a series, I think it's either eight or nine cycles. And it's this cycle, it's the great cycle. And the Jews cycle, and they cycle, 
and they cycle. And every time they do, it gets worse and worse and worse till the very end. It's violent and it's terrible things are happening. And there's very little emphasis in the book of Judges on, say, morality or ethical behavior, right? You get, the, you get um, Samson and Delilah, and Samson's just a wreck. These, these heroes are not exemplars of morality. They, they do terrible things, but they're stuck in the cycle, and that's kind of the point of the book of Judges. They're stuck in this cycle, and then God has to break them out of that cycle. And then as the story moves on, they get out of that cycle only to eventually fall back into it. But when you get to the prophets, and now you have a complete shift to where the prophets are, it's all about the emphasis on ethical behavior, righteousness with God and your neighbor. It's justice and mercy and reducing suffering. So you can see there's a, there's a progression happening. Okay, so we move from that great cycle to the prophets, where you're now paying attention to the righteousness that's happening and wisdom and bringing heaven down to earth. And over the next, say, 500 years leading up to Jesus, you're going to start seeing something that is much more akin to the kingdom of heaven. Uh, in the Old Testament, you never get the phrase kingdom of heaven. You get the idea that God is on a throne. You get the idea that God reigns, but there's nothing specific. By the time you get up to Jesus, it's much more pronounced in the writings, even around. Uh, our New Testament. So now we're moving up to Jesus, and what we're going to see in Jesus is literally the connection of heaven and earth, where the kingdom of, of God is being fully manifested here on earth, right? So the rule of heaven, the reign of God, breaks forth into the earth, into our realm. The kingdom of God is here, and evil is pushed back, and you'll see that as Jesus drives out demons, and order is restored from the chaos. He's now, he's the one standing in the gap. It's no longer just Israel. It's now Jesus, and this is N.T. Wright, uh, the British theologian. N.T. Wright says all the time, Jesus is what Israel was supposed to be. He takes on that mission, and he becomes now the person in him, in his being, that brings together heaven and earth. So there's another shift happening. And this is really important for us because the shift is moving away from, hey, your kingdom or your country, you become the kingdom of God, to now you as an individual. It's a shift towards the individual. Now, instead of Israel filling that gap, it's Jesus. He's filling the gap. He's now, in his presence, going to bring the reign of God down to earth. And one more step, because this is where it affects all of us, the responsibility shifts to all humanity, to individuals, because now we're shifting from a country called Israel, or the nation of Israel, to the individual, to say, you know what, you be the one to go out. Jesus wants his followers to go bring the, he tells, sends his disciples out, drive out demons and tell them the kingdom of heaven is near. So he wants this to shift to the individual who's able to do that. So you can see there's a whole shift happening across time, and it's getting closer and closer to the manifestation of the kingdom of God here on earth, first in Jesus, but then he wants to do it with his followers. And this is where it really becomes, now it's on us. Because if the kingdom of heaven in Matthew is the present reality, then how do we manifest that present reality here on earth? 
And so what happens is post-Jesus now, the shift goes to now all humanity is responsible to expand the reign of God. How do we do that? We connect with God and the fullness of his kingdom, and we bring it to earth in our presence. Your very being is affecting the reality of you and the people around you. Even the Gentiles, right? It's no longer the Jews. It's the Gentiles who can even go out and bring the kingdom of God. It's the the picture of the Holy Spirit as it leaves the temple on Pentecost and lands on the individuals, right? So that now we get this great picture that the, the Holy Spirit is being distributed to all who would accept God as their king. Now, any of us anywhere in the world can now manifest the kingdom of God. We all have, this is another one from Matthew, seek first the kingdom of heaven and everything else will be given to you. So we have a responsibility. All of us have a responsibility to seek the kingdom, to stand in that gap, to try to bring the manifestation of God's power to here here on earth, and it changes the world around us. And then we become, in a sense, co-builders of the kingdom, because the future, we're moving towards a future that we can change by our own actions in the present. That's the key. Since we exist in time, we can do things today or tomorrow that will have ramifications in the future. And God wants us to walk in wisdom so that the future manifests the kingdom of heaven. Now, of course, there's, there's big things happening that we don't have any control of, but the reality is part of the message of what God is, or what Jesus is saying is he wants you as the individual to stand in that gap between heaven and earth and have heaven through you realized here on earth. And I'll try to show you that through Matthew, how it's more about the present than so much about, hey, w- w- just wait, you know, get saved, then sit on the couch and wait for the second coming, and then eventually you'll get to heaven. It's not the point, right? We want to we be builders of the kingdom here on earth. Okay, so hopefully I gave you a little bit w- different way to think about how things are progressing through the Bible, how things are moving from God pulling you out of that cycle of time. And, you know, if you notice the zealots or even Paul, he's resorting back to violence. He's resorting back to power. He wants power. He's going to use violence. Those are the tactics of the old way of thinking. God wants to pull you out of that. Say, no, 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 it's not about power and violence. When the kingdom comes, it's totally different. Than, than the way the world thinks about it. All right, so quick review. You've got a present reality, right? It's both by Jesus and Matthew throughout that gospel. And we, we want to make sure as you're reading through that, you're, you have these little moments where you're picking up on it. Oh, yeah, that little question is not about the future. It's a present reality. It's the acknowledgement of God's reigning in your life. When you say, God, you take charge of my life, you're, handing, you're accepting the kingdom of heaven. It's also, though, deeper, it's recognizing the reality of his reign in creation. And that drives us to wisdom. It drives us to action that's different than than the world might tell you to do. The kingdom of heaven is God's promises breaking into the present. So the future promises coming into the present very forcefully. There's also a shift happening with Jesus, right? It's moving towards the individual. He, one person 
becomes what Israel was supposed to be, and then he wants you to be around the whole world to be building that kingdom as individuals. And then wisdom is the idea, of course, we're living out the rule of heaven here on earth, right? So Jesus, again, those who hear my words and put them into action are like a wise man who builds a house on a rock. Those who hear my words and do not put them into action, they're like the foolish man who builds on sand. So it's not about just hearing the words, it's about hearing and doing. I think it's James that says, don't just be a hearer of the word, be a doer of the word, or you deceive yourself. So it's about some deception that we have. Okay. God willing, I was able to help or have you think a little bit different about the kingdom of heaven. Because as you read Matthew, we're going to struggle, especially as Westerners, largely in the Protestant um, tradition, don't always think about the kingdom of heaven in that way. So next week, we'll look at the genealogy. It's light breaking forth and really cool some of the ways that we can look at that genealogy and its redemptive history. But we'll go with the idea of light breaking forth into the darkness. So that'll be the genealogy next week. And that is our study for week one, the kingdom of heaven. I feel like I just dumped a whole bunch of information on you. What I want to be able to do is take, all of, take that idea of the kingdom of heaven and pull it forward as we're going through Matthew. We'll keep bringing it up. There's something very powerful when we start to look at it as the, in the present reality that we often miss if we only think about it in the future reality something in the future, even though the future is going to be there. 